This morning, we continue to make our way through Matthew's gospel, and um, we are indeed on a path towards concluding Matthew's gospel that will enable us to study Christ's resurrection on Easter Sunday and the week following Easter to study together the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples after his glorious resurrection and prior to his ascension to the Father's right hand. And so the text itself, which of course is very meaningful, will be doubly so as we work our way through this very special time of the Christian yearly calendar. But this morning we turn our attention to just a few verses from Matthew chapter 27, and in particular verses 11 through 14. Now before I read from Matthew's gospel, I'd like to read from Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, We have made an effort throughout our study recently in Matthew's gospel especially to put in tandem uh, the readings from Matthew with places in the Old Testament where the same themes about Christ, our Redeemer, are on display. And so in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 7, we read that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. And then Matthew 27 Verses 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear? How many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. The grass withers and the flowers of the field fade and fall, but this God's word from Matthew chapter 27 
endures forever. Please join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, it is such an amazing privilege, week in and week out, to be able to be presented with the amazing work of Jesus Christ, our only Redeemer, to see spelled out for us the things that he endured, the things that he took upon himself in order to secure our salvation and to give us that salvation as a free gift. Father, we pray that as we consider this morning Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate, that you would indeed stir up faith and trust in our hearts, that you would help us to see Jesus as the king that we have needed for our salvation, and that you would also to see how it is that our king has set a path that in many ways we are called upon to follow. Bless us, Lord, we pray. Bless us to hear and to receive your word this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier on in our worship service, we recited together the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed demonstrates masterful brevity in condensing the Christian message and summarizing its most essential truths about the triune God and the salvation that he has freely extended to sinful humanity. The Latin original of the Apostles' Creed numbers exactly 100 words. Our English version numbers right around 115 words. Masterful way of summarizing so much in so few words. And yet with such economy, it perhaps is very surprising that two precious words within the Apostles' Creed are dedicated to recording the identity of an otherwise nondescript Roman governor who presided over the darkest moments of Christ's redemptive suffering, the one we know as Pontius Pilate. Two words out of a hundred, two words out of the English 115 set aside to recording the name Pontius Pilate. Or to look at this surprising insertion in the creed in another way, Aside from naming the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the only two names designated in the creed are those of the Virgin Mary and Pontius Pilate. The creed makes no mention of Abraham, makes no mention of Moses, David, Peter, Paul, not even Judas, the notorious traitor, but it does record Pontius Pilate. By including the name of Pilate, the authors of the Apostles' Creed have shown great sensitivity to the biblical text. Both the text of the Gospels as well as in a number of other places in the New Testament. Because as we're going to see today and in the next few weeks, Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate has great significance in the Savior's redeeming work. 
as we turn to Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11 this morning. The transition by which Jesus is no longer being tried before the council, the religious council, to the fact that Jesus is now being tried by civil authorities. This is no mere historical accident. In fact, it is a vital part of God's providential rule related to the substitutionary atonement of the Savior, the Lamb of God who has come into the world to take away the sins of the world. Because as Jesus being tried and suffering under Pontius Pilate, we are seeing that the Gentile world outside the boundary lines of the Jewish people have also participated in condemning and crucifying the Son of God. And therefore the Gentile nations, through the representation of Pontius Pilate, also stand accountable to God, the righteous judge, for this most heinous and corrupt act of defiance, killing God's Son. And yet this collaboration in wickedness ultimately opens the door of salvation for all nations. For as we'll see a little bit later on, Pilate's own admission is that he was spilling innocent blood. Spilling innocent blood. The innocent one dying in the place of the guilty. This gracious transaction by which we are justified through faith. God putting our sin, our guilt upon the innocent one. And God clothing us, though guilty, in the innocence of the righteous one. This amazing transaction, this remarkable grace. Well, Pilate has an important role in bringing this transaction about. Now, as we look at the beginning here in these verses of the trial that Jesus has before Pontius Pilate, the beginning of this interview that is framed so beautifully by Matthew, we see that it really has two features. On one hand, in verse 11, Jesus is posed with a very direct question. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers by saying, you have said so. So in one moment, Jesus answers a question. But the other feature of this interview we find in verses 12, 13, and 14, where there are many accusations lobbed at Jesus, but nonetheless, Jesus doesn't respond to a single charge. One time Jesus speaks. Later on, Jesus remains silent. He speaks. He remains silent. With both of these reactions being in perfect harmony with his office as our Redeemer. We find here that Jesus, in one occasion speaking up, in another case being silent, he is advancing the purposes of God for our salvation, as we'll see here in just a moment. And yet at the same time, there is another level that we need to understand this interview um, operating uh, on. Because as we have seen repeatedly, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus, even in the midst of his own suffering and endurance, even in the midst of his agony of soul in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus continues to be the one who is discipling us training us, 
raising us up as his followers, those who would be fitted to be his ambassadors to a lost and dying world. And so it is no accident that Matthew has recorded in chapter 10 of his gospel that Jesus teaches the disciples that there will come a time when they will be dragged in front of governors. And if you look here at chapter 27, how many times this word governor is used, it becomes very repetitive. It's the same term because we're meant to draw the connection. Jesus has now been dragged in front of the governor. And so not only is he advancing God's purposes for our salvation, he's also showing us then how we should respond should we be placed in similar circumstances with hostile accusations being leveled against us. And indeed, we'll see that there are other scriptures that further require us to understand that Christ's confession and Christ's silence are models that we are to imitate. While on trial before Pilate, Jesus is both advancing God's purposes for our salvation and teaching us how to deal with our own accusers. We might not stand before a judge in a courtroom on account of our faith, although given the present climate we live in, we'd be foolish to to preclude that possibility entirely. But nonetheless, Peter's experience before the servant girls and and other assorted bystanders in the courtyard of the high priest does remind us that when we least expect it, we may very well be confronted with hostile questioners. And so to know when and what to say, or even to know when and how to be silent, this is precious wisdom and guidance from Jesus to us this morning, and we dare not neglect it. And so the first part of this interview is Jesus makes this good confession. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, hear and take up for yourself the good confession of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew goes to great pains to put the the religious and the civil trials of Jesus very much in parallel. And you might remember back what we saw in chapter 26, that there when Jesus was being interrogated by the council, he spoke only when the high priest placed him under an oath and probed him with a direct question. Are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Only then did Jesus speak. To that point, he was silent before his accusers. Just as he does here, in this instance, he only speaks when Pilate poses to him a direct question, a specific question. Notice that in both cases, the church and civil trials, that the question has to do with Jesus being the Christ, or as Pilate phrases it here, according to his Roman sensibilities, whether Jesus is the king of the Jews. And in both cases, Jesus responds by saying, you have said so, which is not an evasion, right? How sometimes maybe in an argument someone say, well, you said it, not me, and that's kind of an evasion of, of what is being spoken about. It's not an evasion, but Jesus is making an affirmation. You have said so, a way that in some sense subtly makes the speaker himself accountable for the rejection and condemnation they eventually pronounce. Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. 
And if you have said so, why would you condemn me if I am indeed the king I claim to be? There's an affirmation that also holds the one making the question accountable. Well, here then, Jesus declares his true identity. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. He declares his true identity despite appearances, despite faulty expectations. Pilate poses this question because of what he has been told by the representatives that have come to him from the Jewish council. We find this so clearly in Luke's accounting of these events. In Luke 23, verse 2, where the representatives of the council say to Pilate, we have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. The absurdity that now the religious leaders suddenly are advocates for the kingship of Caesar and are eager to pay taxes, which they are wrongly claiming Jesus was prohibiting. But you notice the shift. In the church trial, the religious trial, The accusation was blasphemy. Here in the civil trial, the accusation is sedition. It is rebellion. It is troublemaking. It is calling um, into question the vaunted Roman peace and order. And so this is the nature of the appeal to Pilate, who doesn't care at all about blasphemy, but would be expected to care a great deal about law and order. Now, as Pilate poses this question, it takes little imagination to conclude that he asks it with a high degree of sarcasm. Are you the king of the Jews? For after all, the Savior's already humble appearance has to this point already been marred by abuse. By this point, he has been repeatedly struck in the face and head. And his swollen face was not only the canvas for the vivid red spatterings of blood and the emerging yellows and purples of various bruises breaking out upon his visage, but it also glistens with the wads and strands of scornful spittle which his bound hands are unable to brush away. A king... That's absurd. A king? Who are you kidding? Are you a king? No one is less likely to be a king than this defenseless and clearly despised peasant who is here before the Roman governor. And yet Jesus says, you have said so, an affirmation. He takes his stand upon truth and without hesitation confesses himself to be king. God the Son emptied himself of glory and taking upon himself human nature and who humbled himself in entering the world as the servant of sinners unto eternal life. He may not look the part. He may not meet typical expectations of one who is powerful to guide and govern as ruler. He may not seem equipped to protect his own and to conquer his enemies. He may not be offering the kind of kingdom that the people of this world seek and are inspired to take hold of. Nevertheless, here he stakes his claim to be the king sent by God to reign over his people for their 
everlasting welfare for their unending good. Now, Matthew has shown us in many ways Christ's kingly sovereignty. We've seen it when he cast out legions of demons from a man with a mere word. We've seen it as he has healed the sick. We've seen it as he has multiplied loaves and fishes to feed his hungry followers. We've seen it as he has silenced the winds and the waves that threatened to sink the boat that he and his disciples were riding in. In every sphere. Every conceivable sphere, whether physical or spiritual, these spheres have bowed before his will and submitted to his irresistible command. He is king, Matthew has been showing us. He is king indeed. But even more so, Jesus is still king, even as he stands before Pilate. He is still king as he has resisted the urge to call legions of angels to defend him and to intervene in his arrest and betrayal. He is still king because what he is doing here as he makes his way to the cross is he is defeating the greatest enemies that Adam's cursed race truly faced. Jesus, in going to the cross, is defeating our greatest enemies, the enemies of sin and death. So that by the kingship of Christ, sin no longer reigns in you and death no longer holds forth fear for you. Raised to life and reigning now at the Father's hand, our King purposefully oversees everything that happens in this seemingly chaotic world so that every circumstance of every day of your life must work together for your salvation. That's what an amazing King He is right now. By His Word and Spirit, our King Jesus is graciously and progressively taking captive your heart and your life So that through his kingship, through serving this mighty king, you would know for the first time what true liberty really is. Jesus holds forth such a kingdom. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Things that the world cares less than nothing about, but we who have new eyes through the birth of the Holy Spirit, we see them as precious commodities more to be desired than much fine gold. And upon his pending return and his accompanying judgment, every knee will bow and every tongue confess the undeniable truth that Jesus, yes, this very Jesus, that this Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are you king of the Jews? It is as you say. My friends, make it known that you trust even this Jesus for eternal life. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 12 through 15 alludes to the good confession that Jesus has made. And he alludes uh, uh, presumably to exactly what is taking place here in Matthew chapter 27. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says it is as you say. And as Paul alludes to the good confession of Jesus Christ, he is using that to encourage Timothy in his own ongoing confession of Jesus Christ. Paul urges Timothy to take hold of eternal life. And one of the ways that Timothy fulfills that commandment and holds tenaciously upon salvation is by making the good confession. 
He has already made that good confession among the friendly faces of the church. But now in Ephesus, where Paul has left him to continue to serve the church, not all the faces are friendly. And not everyone is eager and willing to hear the good confession, Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is my king. And so it is that Paul is reminding Timothy where strength resides. It resides in the knowledge of the living God who, is, who provides life for his people, who is even able to raise up those who are stricken down by their enemies in this world. His strength resides in Jesus Christ who first made this good confession in his own regard before Pilate. Pilate, uh, Timothy, Jesus made the good confession. Timothy, you make this good confession as well. And so too, brothers and sisters, we confess our faith. We confess our faith among friendly, smiling faces within the church, to be sure. When we receive members, when those young people growing up in the church become communicant members. We hear the profession of faith that is made and it is done here within the love and warmth of the family of faith. As we recite together the Apostles' Creed, we declare together the things we believe. We recite our faith in the friendly confines of the church. And yet in many ways, the good confession within the church is practice for making the good confession outside the church making it known to a watching world that we trust Jesus not only to be kind of our, 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 our life coach, our comforter and guide now, but to be the Savior who delivers us from death, the mighty one who rescues us from the grave, to be the very one who has paid the penalty that our sin has deserved in our place so that we might be reconciled to our Creator. We make the good confession to the world, I believe in Jesus. In this upcoming week, you will be surrounded by many who will not want to hear or may not like what they hear coming from your lips. But Paul, in taking up this moment in Christ's ministry and applying it to Timothy, he is reminding us that for your sake as well as for the sake of the world, the good confession must be made. When is the last time you've stated with simple clarity, Jesus is my King. Jesus is my Savior. Are you willing not only to look the part of being a follower of Jesus, but also to speak the part as well? In a world where everyone seems inclined to spout off personal opinions about any matter under the sun, why are you so reluctant to inject a little Jesus into the conversation. Remember Jesus' good confession as we have opportunity to make ours about Jesus in the midst of the world. But secondly, we find here that we are to understand and adopt for ourselves the stunning silence of Jesus Christ. The stunning silence of Jesus Christ. Whatever the impression made by Jesus' words upon Pilate, the text tells us specifically that this worldly, wise, and experienced judge is most amazed by Jesus' silence. Verse 14, he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus has amazed people by his teaching. 
Jesus has amazed people by his miracles. Here, Jesus is amazing Pontius Pilate by his silence. Silence in the face of many accusations on the part of the Jewish representatives. Perhaps for the first time in Pilate's judicial functioning, the one accused is not adamantly speaking up and proclaiming his innocence. Proclaiming innocence especially in light of the looming prospect of harsh punishment that it is the singular responsibility of the governor to met out. And yet even more importantly here, we need to understand that this is a vital stage in the legal process. According to accepted practice, the third party, the representatives of the Jewish council, have brought the accusation to the judge. Pilate the judge is seated on his judgment seat. And despite Pilate's obvious reservations that we'll see in coming weeks, if there is no defense offered, then a verdict and a punishment would automatically be rendered. That's why Pilate warns Jesus here, don't you hear what they're saying? Because if Jesus refuses to acknowledge and to defend himself against any of their charges, then Pilate's hands will be tied. He will have no choice but to render a guilty verdict because the accusations have been made. No defense has been offered. Clearly the one who is standing before him must be guilty. And if guilty, then he must be punished. But that's exactly the point of our Savior's silence. He is showing his willingness here to be punished. Jesus submitted to his true purpose by being silent, humbling himself before the Father's will. No doubt in Jesus' silence, there is an impressive graciousness being shown towards his accusers. Amazing self-control that enables Jesus to refrain from responding in kind by berating those who through their words are seeking to bring about his demise. Jesus shows amazing graciousness and self-control. May we have the same self-control over our words, the words that proceed from our mouths, which are so often inflammatory and selfish, rather than gracious and life-giving. No doubt there is a compelling dignity that is just radiating from our calm Savior who fears no man and quakes not even in the face of death itself as he exudes a confident majesty that at this point is clearly beginning to unsettle the easily pressured and profoundly unconfident and unsure Roman official. May we, by the Spirit of Jesus, show dignity, calm, and confidence in the midst of life's pressures and even in the face of this present life's conclusion in death itself. But whatever majesty and whatever graciousness Jesus is displaying here, most of all, Jesus in his silence is showing his willingness to accept The penalty, not because of his guilt, but because of the guilt of his people, which he would bear in their place as their substitute. The wrath of the cup of wrath that was so real in the garden, that cup of wrath, which is rightly ours to consume. Jesus is now bringing it nearer and nearer to his blessed lips. 
He opens his lips to take the cup, but he does not open his lips to speak in his own defense. In his silence, he shows his submission. The lion of the tribe of Judah is here the guileless lamb being led to the slaughter. The sheep sheared to be presented bloody and naked before the eyes of all. And yet he endures all with no complaint, no argument, no resistance. Truly the will of the Lord, to use the language of Isaiah, prospers in the hand of such a voluntary and accommodating servant. Jesus defines his purpose by the will of the Father. I saw this past week a van that was representing some sort of agency or organization in our community. And it was one of these uh, vans that was entirely covered in an advertisement for this community. It was called uh, a house of purpose. And the motto was, if you have a pulse, you have a purpose. It's a pretty good motto. Jesus here saw his purpose. The purpose of his life was to give it away unto death for the salvation of those who would be found in him. From eternity past in the covenant of redemption, the persons of the Trinity have in wisdom derived and decreed the plan of salvation in which the Father predestined some to eternal life in his love. The Son would become incarnate to live and die and rise again. And the Holy Spirit has proceeded from the Father and from the Son to apply salvation and to baptize the church for powerful service. But in his silence, we now see that this crucial moment in history has arrived. The moment that all eternity has been focused upon. And in the son's silence, in his refusal to proclaim his innocence, in his refusal to demand his release and to stand up for himself, this means that he will not fail. It means he will not shrink back. He will not break this binding covenant made within the immutable Godhead and done for the sake of lost humanity, sinners like you and me. Pilate is amazed at Jesus' silence. Are you amazed at Jesus' silence? His silence secures your salvation. And yet even so, we see here a lesson for us as those who follow in Christ's footsteps. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 25, Peter reminds us that at times our gracious silence will be the best testimony of our faith in God. Peter in those verses tells us that this is part of our calling to follow in Christ's footsteps in moments, such moments in our own lives. Peter has in mind, he envisions a Christian servant, we might say a Christian employee, a Christian who in some office of life is under someone else's authority. And Peter has in mind how it is that that Christian employee, that Christian servant is being harassed harassed by the person whose authority over them, not because the Christian employee has failed to do what has been asked, but it's even in the midst of respectful compliance that this person is being harassed, just because the one in authority is mean as a snake, cruel as a crocodile, and has something against Christians to boot. 
And in such times, Peter tells us that our grace-filled, even compassionate silence, which is just like the silence of Jesus, who did not revile for revi- as he was being reviled, who had no deceit in his mouth, our silence can speak powerfully about our Savior. We can't control the evil around us, but we can, by the grace of God, control our response to the evil around us. Now, it goes beyond the scope of this particular sermon and the time that we have remaining to qualify then when to speak and when to be silent. We know that Peter demonstrated in his own ministry that he would obey God rather than men if demands were placed upon him to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. He would not stop speaking. He would obey God rather than men. We know at times Paul employed his Roman citizenship to great advantage for himself and even for the churches and the communities where he founded them. And there were moments when he was brought before authorities and he took every advantage of publicly proclaiming the gospel. Clearly, sometimes it is right to speak up. But what we find here, the example of Jesus, that is set before us, especially in 1 Peter chapter 2, is that when there are many accusations being hurled at us, many of which will be baseless, many of which will be groundless, many of which will be petty, many of which will be personal in nature, instead of feeling compelled to answer them all, instead of feeling compelled to defend ourselves, instead of being obligated to spend every waking moment responding to the negative posts on Facebook, responding to the negative comments that are placed under the news stories of whatever news service we like to read, Instead of writing letters to the editor, a bit of an anachronism like the telephone book I showed you earlier on. Instead of simmering and stewing in our antagonism and raising our voices and clenching our fists and getting red in the face. We are reminded that we can show a calm, poised, dignified confidence that suffering for good, as Peter says, is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And in that sense, we are willing to submit to the world's penalty against us for being a Christian. Just like Jesus was willing to submit to Pontius Pilate's penalty against him, though innocent. Though only Jesus heals by the wounds that he has received for us. When we are wounded for him, the scripture tells us we share in his suffering. Peter tells us that Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He didn't need to defend himself before earthly judges who are so easily corrupted and swayed towards injustice, who so blatantly show partiality and favoritism. Do you expect the world to judge you fairly? When Pilate failed the cause of justice in Jesus' case? Isn't it better through your silence before men to make your trusting appeal to God rather than assuming your your appeal ends with earthly judges? Make your appeal to God in whose sight you live every moment of each day. Is it only our brothers and sisters in foreign lands who often have no hope of human justice and who therefore must cast themselves on God's vindication? Or is that also not part of your calling? as well because here we see Jesus in his good confession and in his stunning silence advancing God's purposes for our salvation 
But we're also told here that whether we are being called to be bold in our confession or most trusting in our silence, that we are to follow in the Savior's footsteps always. Please join me in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for the work of Jesus in our behalf, the victim, the sacrifice, the one considered a criminal, though innocent of all charges. Thank you for what he has done for us. Thank you for all that he has accomplished to secure our everlasting salvation. And yet, Father, we know that we are to live lives worthy of the gospel, live lives worthy of our calling, live lives worthy of our Savior himself. And so we pray that how we speak and how we refrain from speaking, that we would show forth the glory of Christ to the needy world around us. We ask it in the Savior's name. Amen. And this morning, as we respond to God's word together, we do so by singing, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Standing, please, to sing.
As we look to the Lord Jesus to be our rock and our redeemer, we are dismissed with this blessing from our worship service today. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.